us together to talk about possible mines, mines in uh, human and AI systems and the variety of mines, not just that there are, but that there could be. Um, I guess I think about the mind for a living, especially the, uh, the human mind, um, where at least we have kind of a, a rough grip on the, the phenomenon. Mind is something we all um, know that we have. When it comes to AI systems, I think you know, AI researchers often you know, not quite sure what to, what to make on this, what to make of this. Um, what is it? What would it be for an AI system to, uh, to have a mind? What are the criteria? What's the, uh, the research project? So today I'm just going to talk about an angle on thinking about the mind and, in fact, the, the mind-body problem that also suggests a research program in AI and might um, help us bite off it's a little bit of the big philosophical puzzles around the, the mind and its relationship to the, uh, to the brain. So starting with the, uh, starting with the mind, you know, okay, as, starting with the human case, as humans, okay, we've got these, uh, these bodies and these brains, which are you know, reasonably, they work okay. But we also have minds. We, uh, we see, we, uh, we hear, we think, we feel, we plan, we act, we do. Um, we're conscious. Um, so viewed from the outside, you see a very, you know, reasonably finely tuned mechanism, not so finely tuned at this hour of the morning. Um, but uh, from the inside, we have, we all experience ourselves as having a mind, as being a feeling, thinking, experiencing, being. And uh, it's pretty central to our conception of ourselves. It also raises any number of philosophical and scientific problems. If it just comes to explaining the objective stuff from the outside, you know, the behavior and so on, then put together some, uh, some neural and computational mechanisms and it looks like we can, uh, we can, uh, we have a paradigm for explaining those. But when it comes to explaining the mind and in particular to the, uh, the conscious aspects of the mind, it looks like the standard paradigm of just uh, putting together mechanisms and explaining things like objective processes leading to behavior leaves some kind of explanatory gap. Uh, the question of how does all that processing actually give you a sub subjective experience, why does it feel like something from the inside is, doesn't look like it's directly addressed by these, uh, these methods, so that's what you know, people call the, uh, the hard problem of consciousness as opposed to, say, the easy problems of explaining uh, explaining behavior. And, you know, the discussion can then spin off in a thousand directions. Could you explain conscious experience in terms of the brain? Uh, does it require something fundamentally new? Does it really exist at all? But uh, here I'm, but lately I've been interested in coming at this from a slightly different direction, which is, um, I guess we've got the first order problem of consciousness and then as I said, it's often hard for people, say, from AI research or from neuroscience or psychology, to know, okay, well, that's great. I see there's a problem here, but I'm not quite sure what I can, uh, what I can do with it. Um, the angle I've been thinking about lately is to, uh, is to step up a level. I always... Uh, I don't know who this, uh, this slogan comes from. Anything you can do, I can do meta. 
sometimes it's attributed to my thesis advisor, Doug Hofstadter, but I don't think it was him. I've seen it attributed to Rudolf Carnap. I don't think it was him, uh, him either. But in any case, I've been lately been, been thinking about what I call the meta problem of consciousness, which is uh, the first order problem of consciousness is you know, how does all this processing give rise to, uh, to give you a conscious experience. The meta problem is why do we think there is a problem of consciousness? In particular, why do we go around saying there's a problem of consciousness? There are experiments on this, and one finds that the, uh, that the uh, that, you know, belief in consciousness is extremely widespread, and you know, belief in the problems of consciousness is extremely widespread. So it's consistent with this approach, by the way, that it all be an illusion or nonsense. Nonetheless, there's an interesting psychological problem. Why do people believe there's a problem of consciousness? Because that is a fact of human behavior, that, uh, that people go around saying things like, hey, I'm conscious. Uh, they go around reporting subjective experience. And indeed, they get to, you know, even in kids, you can get various puzzlements um, that would associate with conscious experience. How do I know that my experience of red is the same as your experience of, of green? Could someone who only had black and white vision know what it was like to experience purple? And so on. You get these, uh, these gap intuitions. But those are a fact of human behavior. It's an empirical fact, exactly how widespread. They are, and to what extent you find them across cultures. But in any case, I think there's a very interesting research project here of trying to, to study these intuitions in, uh, in adult humans, in kids, across cultures, across, uh, across languages, to, uh, to try and find out exactly what the, uh, the data are about the puzzlement. And then, most interestingly, I think, to try and find the mechanisms that, uh, that generate this kind, of, uh, this kind of behavior, presumably, you know, this is a fact of, uh, of human behavior. Human behavior is ultimately explainable. It seems in terms of, of mechanisms, we ought to be able to find the mechanisms that are responsible for this kind of expressed puzzlement about consciousness. And I think it's, uh, there's, in principle, a project for psychology and for neuroscience and for, uh, and for AI to try and find plausible computational mechanisms, A, that fit the, uh, that fit the human case, explain what's going on in... Uh, in us, and B, might actually have some applicability to AI as well. And I think that you can find bits and pieces of, of work going on right now in psychology and neuroscience and philosophy that, that bear on this. I don't think it's yet really been put forward into a, uh, put into a, uh, together into a research program, but I've been, uh, you know, I've been trying to uh, advocate for, a, uh, for a, a research program here lately because it's a tractable bit of the mind-body problem we can, uh, we can bite off. And I think one reason why it's one uh, reason why it's uh, the thing that makes it tractable is it's ultimately a bit of, uh, of behavior that we can operationalize, that we can begin to uh, to try to explain, which is notoriously hard to do for consciousness in general. But it also provides a, uh, a project for AI. Uh, AI researchers working on there are people who work on so-called artificial consciousness, trying to produce consciousness in machines, but the whole question of criteria is really very difficult in this case, in the human case. So for neuroscience and psychology, you start with a human who you know is conscious, and we can do things like look for the neural correlates of consciousness and potential mechanisms. Um, in AI systems, you don't start with a system that you know is conscious, and it's very difficult to know what criteria, what operational criteria do you want to satisfy in order to count a system as conscious. So here's a potential operational 
criterion, something like express puzzlement about consciousness of the kind that, uh, that we do. Once you've actually got a, you know, an AI system that says, well, I know in principle I'm just a bunch of, uh, of, uh, of silicon circuits, but from the first-person perspective I feel like so much more, then, uh, then maybe we might be onto something in understanding the mechanisms of consciousness. Now, of course, if that just happens through uh, somebody programming a, a, a machine to tr imitate superficial human behavior, then uh, that's not going to be so exciting. If, on the other hand, we get there via trying to figure out the mechanisms which are doing the job in the, uh, in the human case and getting an AI system to uh, implement those mechanisms, then we find that, you know, via some relatively natural process that um, it, A, finds consciousness in itself and, B, is puzzled by this fact. And that, I think, would at least be very interesting. And, you know, one, bringing this back to the possible minds question, I think an interesting question about, uh, AI, about possible minds in general is, you know, will every possible mind, will every, let's say, will every possible intelligent system somehow experience itself or model itself as having a mind? You know, is the language of mind going to be just about inevitable in an AI system that has some kind of, uh, some kind of model of itself? And of course, if you've just got an AI system that's thinking about the world and modeling the world and not really bringing itself into the, uh, into the equation, then maybe, okay, it may, may need the language of mind to talk about, talk about other people if it wants to model them or to model itself from the third-person perspective. But I think it's very natural, as if we were working towards artificial general intelligence, to have AIs with models of themselves and with self-models, in particular with introspective um, self-models, where, you know, models of themselves, that, where they can know what's going on from the, uh, in some sense, from the first-person perspective. I was talking with Ian last night about, you know, just say uh, you do something that negatively affects um, an AI, like, you know, something that in a... Ordinary human would correspond to, you know, damage and uh, and pain. Well, you know, your AI is going to say, well, please don't do, uh, please don't do that. That's uh, that's very bad. Um, but introspectively, it's naturally the model that was that you know you've caused me one of those one of those uh, those states that I call pain. And the question is, is it going to be sort of an inevitable consequence of introspective self models in AI? They start to at least model themselves as having something like consciousness. Um, and my, I guess my own suspicious suspicion is that there's something about, something about the mechanisms of self-modeling and of introspection and so on that are going to very naturally lead to these, uh, to these intuitions, where an AI will at least model itself as being conscious. And then, of course, the next step is going to be, is an AI of this kind going to very naturally experience consciousness as somehow, uh, as somehow puzzling, um, as something which, uh, which you know, potentially is hard to square with basic underlying mechanisms and hard to explain that way. And I guess you know, I've also got the, the suspicion that I'm not going to say it's inevitable that an AI system will uh, experience itself this way and make these reports. After all, there are plenty of humans who, uh, who don't, uh, don't make these reports. But I think in humans, there are at least some underlying mechanisms that tend to, uh, that tend to, uh, to uh, push people in the direction of finding themselves to have these weird and interesting uh, mental phenomena. And I think it's going to be very natural for AIs 
to do that as well. I mean, so I think there is a research project here for uh, for um, AI researchers too, which is to you know to see if um, to generate systems with certain kind of models of what's going on within themselves, and to see whether this might somehow lead to uh, to express puzzlement, to expressions of belief in things like consciousness, and to express puzzlement about this. So far, the only research I know in this direction is a little project was done last year by a couple of um, uh, a couple of researchers, Luke Milhauser and Buck Schlageris, where they tried to build a little theorem prover, um, a, uh, a little software agent that had a, a few basic axioms for uh, modeling its perception of, uh, of color and its own processes. And it would give you reports like, hey, well, that's red of such and such a shade. And it would know that they could sometimes go wrong. So you could say, well, I'm representing red of such and such a shade. And from a certain number of basic uh, basic uh, axioms, it, they managed to get it to generate a certain amount of, of puzzlement, such as how could my, uh, my experience of this redness be the same as this underlying circuit? Now, I'm not going to say this very simple software agent is, is yet replicating the, uh, anything like the mechanisms of, uh, of human consciousness and our introspective access to it. Nonetheless, I think there's a, uh, there's a, a research project here that I'm encouraging my, uh, my friends in AI to look at with help of our friends from psychology and, uh, and neuroscience and philosophy. At the end of the day, of course, there's going to be uh, the question, what does all this mean? Does, just say we do find the mechanisms that generate our reports of being, of being conscious and our puzzlement about conscious, will that, consciousness, will that somehow dissolve the whole problem? I think someone like Dan Dennett would certainly want to take that line. It's all a big illusion and explaining these, uh, these mechanisms, you'll thereby have explained the illusion and explained away the problem of consciousness. And that's, that's one line you can take, but you don't have to take that line for, the, uh, for this meta problem to be, uh, to be interesting. You could be purely realist about consciousness in the philosopher's sense. It's an absolutely real phenomenon. Nonetheless, there are going to be mechanisms. These, these, these uh, reports are nonetheless a fact of human behavior, and there are going to be mechanisms that generate them. If you're a realist about consciousness, as I am, then I think the hope is going to be that the mechanisms that generate these reports of consciousness and this puzzlement about it are also going to be very deeply tied to the mechanisms of consciousness itself. So I, th I see this as kind of a challenge for theories of consciousness. There's a million of them out there. Here's what the basis of consciousness is. Maybe it's information integration. Maybe it's a global workspace. Maybe it's quantum this and that. Well, um, you know, for your theory of consciousness to be plausible, I think there's got to be some plausible story you can tell about why that proposed mechanism of consciousness itself would also potentially play a role in generating our reports of, of consciousness, because otherwise it would just be kind of bizarre that the reports would be independent of the phenomenon itself. And it's not clear to me that any, that most, uh, it's not clear to me that many current theories meet this, uh, meet this standard, looking at, say, information integration theories. It's not really clear to me why uh, those theories where more and more information is integrated um, is likely to more and more dispose a system to make these reports, and it looks like the reports can dissociate from the, uh, from the information integration in various interesting ways. So I see this at least as a challenge for theories of consciousness as well as a challenge for AI research and for philosophy, and probably that's enough. Thank you. I don't have answers. <laughs> yeah. um, so this seems not so much meta as hyper to make a whisper machine. <laughs> it's a machine joke. Hyper was the next key after meta. It was controlled meta. Um, 
guess I, I don't know, I haven't uh, read enough of your writings to know whether you believe that um, mammals have some level of consciousness. I do. Because you do. So would you, I, I, I'm guessing you wouldn't expect a dog to be able to report on its own consciousness. Yeah. So isn't this asking for a very high bar about consciousness if you're going to want it to report on itself? Yeah, I should, nobody would propose, um, I don't think anyone should propose reports as a necessary condition um, for consciousness, clearly. Yeah. Most of the time we're conscious and we're not, uh, we're not reporting, kids are presumably conscious uh, well before they can, uh, they, can, they can report. What age do kids start talking, reporting about their consciousness? Do, do you have any idea? It depends what you count. I mean, you're talking about consciousness in general, the abstract category, this comes relatively late. What age do kids start talking about pain? I don't know, Alison's no, the uh, psychologist here. Well, oh, come on, it's a very abstract category. There's yeah. actually there's yeah. some data about this. So if you're talking about um, things like differences between mental states and physical states, by the time kids are three, they're saying things like, if I'm just imagining a, a hot dog, nobody else can see it, and I can turn it into um, I can turn it into a hamburger, but if it's a real hot dog, then... Uh, everybody else can see it, and I can't just turn it into something else by thinking it. So there's a bunch of work about the kids' understanding of the difference between the mental and the physical. And they seem to have a pretty good... So those are the sort of intuitions. They think that mental things are not things that everybody can see, and that you can't alter them in particular kinds of ways, whereas physical things can, and that's about three or four. But on the other hand, if you ask kids things... Where it gets interesting is there's a whole line of research that uh, John Flavel did. Do you, do you know these this this research where you ask kids things like, uh, all right, right now, Ellie is sitting and looking at the wall in the corner. Are things happening inside of her mind? Are there things that are going on inside of her mind? And it's not till about eight or nine, till really late from a developmental perspective, that they say, yeah, something's going on in her mind when she's sitting there and she's not acting and she's not perceiving. And you can show that even if you give the introspective example, so you can do something like, uh, my favorite example of this is you ring a bell really regularly and you know so every minute the bell goes rings and then it doesn't and you say to the kid were you just what were you thinking about just now the kid say nothing and you say were you were you thinking about the bell and the kid say no i wasn't thinking about the bell the, one of the kids very there's a lovely passage where a kid says the way your mind works is there's little moments when something happens inside of your mind and you think and then nothing happens and then there's a little moment when something goes in on in your mind and you think and then nothing happens. So the kids seem to either experience or their meta view is that it's consciousness if you're perceiving or you're acting, then you have consciousness or if maybe if you're imagining to a prompt, but if you don't, if you're not, if it's not connected, then nothing is happening. So they have, they have a theory of consciousness, but it really looks like it's Really different. It has really different. That's, what it's like. that's exactly what it's like. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's important to separate intuitions about, say, mind and consciousness in general from intuitions about specific phenomena, like say, feeling pain or yeah. seeing colors or thinking. I mean, if you ask, if you have to ask those kids, were you like seeing red all the time? It's like, oh sure. Was that in your mind? I don't know. Maybe they didn't count. Maybe they didn't connect that to the category of uh, of mind. But uh, I think. Um, Probably the case that intuitions about the specific phenomena in kids will kick in 
Well, so, sooner uh, the next question is about the category of mind or consciousness in general. A follow-up question. Well, that's the meta. I mean, that's the, but but those are the meta ones, right? So well, I mean, no, I kids certainly will say, "I see red," or "I don't," I don't see that. But the ones that you're talking about, which are, you know, what? But I don't know. Well, no, I, I would count among sort of key meta problem intuitions as intuitions, like, "Hey, boy, will you, your experience of red could be like my experience of green. Is your red like my?" You know, you get that going in a kid. Knowing all about the brain, could someone know? Uh, what it's like to see red. I do that with mind or consciousness, it's very abstract. So my follow-up question is, what do you think about the um, mirror tests on like elephants and dolphins for sense of self? Well, those are potential tests for self-consciousness, which again is a very, very, uh, very, very high bar. And also, it sure looked at, there's plenty of, plenty of animals that don't, that don't pass them. Right. And then it's like, are they not self-conscious? No, they're probably just not very good with mirrors. But, so, but, but do, do you think that's a falsifiable test of sense of self? Um, also, put, I think the animals who pass it, that's pretty good evidence that they've got certain kinds of very distinctive self-representations, yes. I don't think it's a, I don't think failing it is any sign that you, uh, is any sign that you don't. But I would also distinguish self-consciousness, which is a very complicated phenomenon that, you know, humans and uh, a certain number of, say, mammals may have from ordinary conscious experience of the world, which we get in, say, the experience of perception, of pain, of ordinary thinking. And I think, yeah, self-consciousness is just one component of consciousness. But I want to tie it together to Rod's question because the question of reporting yeah. and the question of the self yeah. are really distinct. Mm -hmm. So one of my running thoughts uh, was about this question of the human who has you know, programmed the computer to report. I mean, mm -hmm. when my car says, low battery, yeah. right? Is it aware that it's feeling low battery? No, I've just programmed it to tell me that it needs right. care. Right? So for me, I want to just propose to you the concept of self-care. So when the human feels pain, it's like, whoa, what, what happened? The human doesn't need to tell anyone else what happened. So I wonder if that could be some sort of contribution to the engineering of consciousness and the AI, that it forgets about the human that it's been told to report to, and instead says, you know, my battery is feeling kind uh, what can I do about it? So I wonder if that model of interiority where you self-talk, you self-report, you, you self-engineer some sort of self-action. I mean, in other words, this would seem to me to be the human model that, that matters. You know, because you yeah. can analogize pain to, the, to Adam's low battery. Some kind of right. connection to your own drives and your own self-concern. Right. Yeah. In other words, um, what I gathered from the, you know, the, the book is that there are forms of AI that are beginning to self-generate, self-reports, and self-repair. But and even self really, even really, really simple systems do that, right? <clears throat> so there's lots of, I mean, essentially anything that's even faintly complex is going to be regulating its own operation. Right. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm recommending to the philosophers that they question their own paradigm of engineering this reporting mechanism because that is interfering. With no, no, but, it, but it's not the reporting. It's not the reporting mechanism. It's that the AI is actually doing exactly what you describe, right? Here's an error. I've got some evidence that I'm making an error, so I'm going to modify what I do based on that. So that my fan up. Yeah, I'll do. I'll do something. So here's yeah, so a. Yeah, so we're not yet at that level of level of, of, of mind and mental vocabulary. For for mental vocabulary to kick in, it's probably going to have to be embedded in the systems of you know, believing, desiring, valuing, pursuing goals, perceiving, 
which goes along so, with So the, here's the a the proposal, system. David. I don't know if I've talked to you about this that's relevant to kids, which is not wanting to go to sleep. So if a creature, you know, one of the things that's very characteristic from kids, including babies from an early age, is that at a point when they clearly have an incredibly strong drive to go to sleep, they don't want to go to sleep. And if you talk to kids, even little kids about this, it's very hard not to conclude that the reason they don't want to go to sleep is because they don't want to lose consciousness, that they, you know, sort of like, I've only been around for two, I've only been able to do this for two years, like I really don't want to stop. Uh, uh, <laughs> Um, and I don't know whether other I don't know whether other creatures show that. Now that's a bit of a joke, but not really in the sense that's that. That's a sign of your intuition about this. The idea of consciousness as something special that gives your life value. Right. And if connected it's to yeah. Caroline's connected to Caroline's point about it. it seems to me like something. Nick Humphreys has a again sort of somewhat comic, but I think actually kind of interesting proposal along these lines that that you know it's connected to things like not wanting to die. That that. Uh, that that's the reason for the meta-intuition that... Um, I see, he thinks that actually generates the problem of consciousness because... Right, yeah, exactly. Uh, we don't want to die. Then, we, and we think if we lose consciousness is the source of... Now we, might, we know we go to sleep. We're not so sure we're going to wake up. Uh -huh. I have a constant um, discussion going on between my Adam and my narrator. Uh, Adam has particularly interesting eyes. Um, blue with little vertical black rods. Uh, and every time uh, my narrator is talking to Adam, he's looking into these eyes, completely plausible. Remember, he has mucous membranes. And he's aware of, uh, of the problem. Can, can Adam see in the sense that we see? In other words, are his eyes just functioning like cameras? Does he see like a camera sees? And that's just a metaphor. And does he hear like a microphone hears? And he has to pose himself the question, who is doing the seeing? But as soon as he asks himself that question, he has to pose the question of his own mechanisms. Who's doing my seeing? Uh, there isn't a, we don't think, a homunculus sitting up there seeing, because the homunculus would have to have someone inside himself to see what the homunculus sees. And obviously, this was dealt with at length in the 17th century and disposed of. Finally, they agree that what they share at the root of their consciousness is matter. Uh, so it, the narrator has neurons. Adam has a whole set of other replicates for them. But upstream of both is the nature of matter, and, and they just have to leave it there. They can go no further than this. I do think at least, um, at least sociologically, when it comes to the creation of, uh, of AI, I mean, we are going to... This question is going to become a practical one once there are AIs in our midst. Are they actually conscious being? And people are going to have arguments about this. The mere fact that they can see is okay, well, and that they can talk about what they're seeing. Well, that will uh, that will help a little bit. Um, it's okay, I see a table in front of me and a, a bottle in front of me, but that, that won't be enough to convince many people that these are actually conscious being. Once you actually get AIs that seem to care about their consciousness, please don't please don't turn me off. <laughs> uh, even for even for a little while, um, all these experiences Nick, are wonderful. Once they start ex experiencing puzzlement about yeah. their consciousness, they say, "Well, you know, I know in principle I'm just a mechanism, but boy, uh, I experience myself as like this." That's going to at least carry sociologically, I think, significant weight <coughs> in convincing people that these are actually conscious beings. With, uh, with Nick, Nick has some examples with primates about doing things like um, taking a rock and holding it underneath water and 
looking and feeling the water on the on the rock as an example of something that evidently primates actually do, where it's very hard to see what kind of functional significance it has other than valuing the experience of feeling your hand in the water and, and, uh, and having having the rock. And those are, if those things sort of develop spontaneously, um, that that might be an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, the sense of actually enjoying your experience yeah, and feeling that this is actually what makes my life worth living. Yeah. So one thing that comes across from both from your talk and the discussion afterwards is that there are many different kinds of consciousness and many things we call consciousness. Might it actually be useful to simply declare that there is not one thing we call consciousness? Yeah. So that is, I mean, there are many aspects of this. I, I, I had uh, one thing, uh, one thing really brought this home to me. I had a conversation about consciousness with an anesthesiologist, and she pointed out that if you're an anesthesiologist, then consciousness is definitely not one thing because <laughs> you have to have four different drugs mm -hmm. to deal with the different aspects of consciousness that you wish to disable. So you have one to just knock people out, sort of like that. But then it's known that people can still experience things and still experience pain. So then you have another to block the sensation of pain. And then, but still people could still have memories while they're knocked out and not feeling pain. So then you have to give them another one to knock out the memories that you have. And then sometimes they give you an extra special one to make you feel really good when you wake up. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so in, in each of these, these drugs are, these, uh, uh, are quite different from each other and they have quite different functions and they're disabling different aspects of the things that we call conscious. Consciousness. Yeah, so I think you actually you're, you're absolutely you need to make this. There is, you know. Maybe okay, well, I think you'd say there's no such thing. Another thing you could no, do is, is no another thing you. But yeah, I think sense. the of course, and of course, the best thing. I mean, the philosopher's age-old move here is to make a is to make a distinction. So I didn't want to get too much into the uh, into the jargon here. But in uh, the philosophy and the science of consciousness, there's fairly standard language by now. For example, to separate. Uh, Phenomenal consciousness, the raw experience, from access consciousness, which is a matter of accessing things and using them to control uh, control behavior and lay down memories, from reflective consciousness, which is you know reflecting on your own uh, your own mental states, and indeed from self consciousness, consciousness of yourself. So I think you're absolutely right. Those uh, those distinctions need to be made. The kind of consciousness which I tend to focus on the most is phenomenal consciousness. The, uh, the raw experience. But even then, of course, you can start breaking it down into components. So there's sensory consciousness, there's cognitive consciousness of thinking, there's affective consciousness. So yeah, don't get, don't get me started on the distinctions. There's plenty of, I, I agree, there's plenty of them to make. And in fact, the anesthesia question is really very interesting because it does, it sure looks like what's doing the heavy lifting in a lot of cases with, uh, with amnesia is kind of scary stuff, like the amnestics. The other things that block your memories are, yeah. are doing a whole lot of the uh, of the heavy lifting, and uh, maybe some analgesics that block the feeling of uh, of pain, and certainly the paralytic that block you uh, that block your movements. But do any of those things actually prevent you from being conscious? It's not well, good. the most significant yeah. one for me is that you don't care. Yeah. Like there's a whole body of surgery that you're actually completely alert, but what they've given you is so you don't care. It's a very strange feeling. It's like, it's all going on. There's even a little pain. But you just don't care. So that's a piece of consciousness that is somehow 
I don't know where the philosophers put that. Does it fall into the affective subset? No, it's, it's, it's affective because it's a value. It's, really, it's experiencing right. values and goals. But it's interesting because... But also, also agentive, agentive consciousness, action. Yeah. Being a subject of action. At this yeah. point, it's like you're, not, you're no longer acting. At the OM conference in 1973, which was perhaps the first post-Macy cybernetic conference, Bates and Vaughn Forster were the organizers. John Lilly addressed this. He said, the way you deal with inhibiting concept, very easy, baseball bat. <laughs> it's interesting because when you do break it down, we can see that some of these aren't a worry about, we would have about getting machines to do, like not laying down memories. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound like a hard thing to model yep. with the machine. Or not, or paralysis, you know, un unable to effectuate some motor or prosthesis or something, that doesn't seem like a hard thing to put into a machine. So it's something, you know, the, the advantage of the kind of distinctions that you were just making and that you were making is that it, it, it then isolates the part that really seems weird and troubling to us. So when we say, oh, machines don't have consciousness, we certainly don't mean machines can't lay down memories or no. machines get paralyzed so they can't affect their motor actuators or, uh, it, it, it's something like the self-aware component, right, or something? I would have said it's the, uh, the phenomenal consciousness component, the raw subjective experience, which may involve self-awareness, but I'm not sure it has to. It turns out a machine is actually experiencing pain and having a, uh, a visual experience of the world of the kind we do. Well, that would already be, that would be remarkable. I think that's, uh, that's part of what we care about and caring about machine consciousness. Certainly the one that seems the most puzzling to me. It's not actually self-consciousness per se. It's just straight out subjective experience. Why should all these processes in the brain... So you would think of a, a squirrel... I mean, we, we certainly think squirrels have pain and... Right? Yeah, and I think a squirrel is almost certainly has some kind of subjective experience. And, you know, the question is at what point are AI systems going to, uh, are going to have that? You know, a few minutes ago you were talking about this is going to become a real issue we have artificial intelligence systems around. Mm -hmm. But, but I, th um, I actually think it's, 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 it becomes an issue much earlier than that because people attribute. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And attribution then leads them to, into strange ways. I mean, we, we saw this in my lab in the 90s with, mm -hmm. the, with the COG robot, with the Kismet robot, people interacting with it. Have you, by the way, have you ever seen the story, The Soul of the Mark III? Uh, it's exactly what I was thinking about. Terrell Midler, uh, the uh, little, little mouse that uh, scurries around the room and squeaks and gets away when you try and, and, and when you pick, when you pick, when you pick it, it up and yeah. really squeaks. You must be going through all that more with Roombas now, right? Yeah, so. and, and, and that's, that's not, you know, in principle, certainly hard to build into a system and it has no consciousness, but it acts like it has consciousness yeah. and it acts like it has pain. Yeah, and, and in this story, that no, no, kill it, kill, kill it with the, with a hammer, and it, people feel it inhibited to, to actually smash this thing to death, even though it's just a, a simple bunch of circuits. By the way, there there, there are there are a lot of um, psychological results that show that the, the thing, the number one thing that convinces us that a system is conscious is whether it has eyes. So you go through a whole bunch of different uh, of, of different systems, and if they have eyes, they're conscious. If they don't have eyes, then that's like do, do you think? Are you a vegetarian? I'm not, but uh, I used to think I used to think I shouldn't I shouldn't eat anything that was uh, that was conscious. But I, actually, my views are 
how the consciousness is very widespread in the animal kingdom and possibly out, possibly outside. So I'd be, like, I would, I'd be lucky to go very hungry. There's a lot. There's a lot of research now on the impressive things that plants can do. Right, exactly. Might we just solve the whole problem for ourselves along along these lines of attribution? Is that if we're in the presence of an artificial being, it behaves just as if it's conscious. We we, we will have. Just no, the same, I'm just asking the same question for we beings we actually interact with. <laughs> It'll be a kind of Turing test. If you we can't tell the difference, you know, you're already halfway there. So you think if a being expresses consciousness, then you're, you're going to take that as pretty good reason to believe it is conscious. I think we'll find it very hard. I, I think you're just as find we find it, it hard to tear up a photograph, you know, I think it's... It, it, um, we will find it very hard if it seems to show a whole range of sensitive and appears to have a theory of mind and appears to really understand us. Yeah, I mean, the analogue of, of, of Rod's case, you know, the mouse, and so it's maybe someone that's an AI that mimics certain superficial behaviour. It's like a, a little cartoon of an AI studying up for the Turing test, and it reads the book called Talk Like a Human. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> maybe superficially you can get one or two sentences into convincing us that you're conscious, but I think, you know, what is... In order to mirror all of our sensitivities and all of our expressions of the varieties of, of consciousness, I think the project here is not just to mirror the superficial expressions, but to mirror the underlying mechanisms. Once I have an AI based on the kind of mechanisms that seem to be doing it in humans and that give rise to the full, right, full range of expression, I'm not sure how much more I could want to demand. Especially if this being, say, was to fall in love with you and write you love poetry and uh, cook you a nice dinner. <laughs> yeah, you said that having eyes makes attribution. My, my early experience in the 80s was when I was, when I was building very insect-like robots, was it was all about the speed. So if, 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 if the robot just banged into the wall and backed up and did it again and did it slowly, people would say, what, what's wrong with it? But if it did it fast, okay. they would say, it looks frustrated. So, <laughs> it's the... Heider, Heider and Simmel put this into their film in 1943. Mm -hmm. Sorry? Heider and Simmel yeah. put this into their film the triangle and the circle chasing each other. The one with six frames is very differently emotional than the one with 12 frames, you know, for its motion. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to just throw out, I don't know if we have time to even entertain this, but the cyborg interface is something I think it's got to come into the futurology here because if I'm plugging in an infrared sensor and then I share it with my computer and we have a certain, you know, like phenomenal, you know, platform between us, at what point is my consciousness, you know, sort of cir circuiting? At what point do I kind of deposit some of my reflective capacities in your, in your, into your the device yeah. having yeah. shared certain machinic possibilities and so on and so forth. I mean, this goes to Frank's really beautiful concept of the ecology, the evolving ecology. Like, we are persisting in, in thinking of this other as, as a kind of, you know, heap of metal that is going to somehow eventually arrive, you know. But what if we are tutoring it? What if we are participating in trading, you know, trading its perception to our perception and then, you know, parking it, you know, when we go to sleep, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a possibility that philosophers could help us imagine, because I think it's already happening. We've already offloaded a lot of our, at least of our cognition, into our devices. No, like well, there's, there's, a, there's a not very good artist who's, who's planted a, a, a thing in his brainstem so that he can hear colors, mm -hmm. uh, because he's colorblind, 
I mean, uh, what part of his consciousness of colors is in the is in the chip? Is in mm -hmm. his cochlear, you know, enhancement device? I mean, I think these questions are already, you know, they're already evolving with in the our right partnerships brain. with yeah. machines. So we might as well. Yeah. Think about whether we're going to take a pedagogical position in relationship. To I think especially when, especially once there's very serious brain computer interfaces, that this is going to be the point where where yeah. consciousness starts to extend into our devices. Right now, I, I think, mean, we think that maybe the, my memories are in my phone and my uh, right. so and the question certain skills, but not yet child, consciousness. Whether the child of Avignon had consciousness, right? Because there was no human to sort of say, "Oh, are are you in pain? You know, oh, are you hungry?" Is that your internal state? I mean, you know, that's a pedagogical environment that, that nurtures and, and, and teaches and evolves consciousness. So I think we could do that with machines. Mm -hmm. yeah. okay. Thank you. Great.